We are in Mark chapter 5 today. Spent a long time in Mark chapter 4, but it was well worth it and, and deserving of the time. In Mark chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 to 20 today, and it's a real sad and real intense uh, passage, a very sobering for us if we really take it to heart and realize that the things that we read about here in this passage are still happening today around the world and maybe even in our own community. Maybe we don't see it, but it still happens. Um, I've entitled the message, The Man of the Tombs, and it's about a man who's demon-possessed, and Jesus... Uh, drives the demons out of the man, uh, causes the demons to leave, and the man is restored and he's healthy. And uh, So let me read the verses, uh, verses 1 to 20, and then I'll have a word of prayer. We'll have a word of prayer together, and then we'll dive in and, and study a little bit. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, And no one could bind him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, that's sad, isn't it? Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said to him, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, and all of the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now those who fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the, the legion. And he was sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed about the swine and about the swine. And the people began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all the people marveled. Lord, I pray that that would be like our lives, Lord, that we tell all the people what you've done for us and they would marvel, Lord. May we have radical, life-changing experiences with you. In a moment or over a prolonged season of time, Lord, you're here to change us, to heal us, to bring us health, to help us think right, help us want the right things, to help us turn away from sin. You're here to save us here and now and also for eternity, God. Jesus, you came to to forgive us of our sins. You died on a cross to forgive us of our sins. And that's just the start. Then you take a life and you change it, Lord. So have your way with us today, we pray, Lord. And may you get the glory for it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
The geographic location, we are told in verse 1 that it's a place called the, the Gadarenes, and it's also, it has a number of names. It's also called the Gerasenes. It was predominantly a Gentile area. It was kind of an ungodly area. And there's a little bit of debate among commentators about who the population was. Some people say that it was uh, predominantly Gentiles, which are people that don't believe in the true and the living God, and they probably were involved in some kind of idolatry or just settled for atheism or something like that. And, but there's also some evidence and some thought that, um, that it was inhabited and the population was a lot of backslidden Jewish people. And what had happened centuries before, uh, if this is the nation of Israel here and you're looking at a map north-south, West, east, doing it backwards area. And uh, when, the, when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt and had been rescued and released and wandered through the desert for 40 years because of unbelief, but when they, came back to, when they came to the promised land, they came up from this side. And there were 12 tribes and God said, I'm going to give you this land. Um, there's people in it that I want you to drive out. They're wicked people and they need to be judged, but come up on this side and cross over the Jordan River. And so as the story goes, and it's recorded in the book of Numbers in chapter 32, that there were uh, about two and a half tribes that said, you know, we, we're, happy to settle, we're happy to settle here. We're happy to settle on the east side of the Jordan. We know, God, that you've given us a land, sometimes called the promised land, the land of Israel. We know that that's your intended destination for us, but we're okay to settle for a little bit less. And... And so it happened. They, they fought for their brethren, but then they retreated back and they built cities for themselves on this side of Israel. This is where this is taking place. So there's some thought here that, that not only is there a lot of Gentiles, but there's a lot of Jewish people that have lost their faith in God, lost their culture, got kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, assimilated into paganism. And so the commentators are split on it, but we know from the, from the book of Numbers, chapter 32, historically that that happened. So who are these people? Don't know ethnically for sure who they are. They're either pagan Gentiles or they're apostate Jews. One thing we know, they're not happy with Jesus. We know that for sure, because the scripture tells us. The, de- the demoniac's condition was, was to, to say it was pitiful would be an understatement. It says in verse 2, And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man. And he's a horrible man, and he's a dangerous man, and he's a frightening man, and he's an intimidating man, and he's a demon-possessed man, and he's naked, and he lives where dead people live. And he has superhuman strength, and he intimidates people and frightens them, and they, they bound him. When it says chains and shackles, that means hand and foot. So they... They bound his feet together, they bound his hands together, and with this superhuman strength, he could just break those things. So it's just, you know, nobody wanted him. He's a a threat to society. So he was confined to this place where if there were any Jewish people around, they wouldn't go because, you know, when somebody died, you had to handle the dead body, but that made you ceremonially unclean. So you couldn't, if you were in Jerusalem and you had just buried somebody, you couldn't go to the temple and worship until you had gone through ritual purification. Ceremonially, it kind of defiled a person. And so this guy was living where a Jewish person would never want to go. And really, it's where, where nobody would ever want to go. There are probably caves where there would be a cave and people would 
kind of chisel out an area and put the bodies in. And so it's just a place where there's dead people. All the, re- all the rejected people of a community would go and hang out there. It was just, a, just an awful life. But my point in verse 2, and it's easy to read over it, it says, out of the tombs a man came. And for all, the, for all that we would see about this guy, all the, the threatening and all the, the, the fear and all the, the wickedness about him and all that was wrong with him, he's still a man. And he's still created in the image of God. And he's still a man that needs the love of God. He's still a man that Jesus loves. And so Jesus didn't just see a demoniac, he saw a man. And it's just good for us to never lose sight of that because sometimes we can see people in our lives and we see all the wickedness about them and all that's wrong with them and we forget that they're, they're a man or they're a woman. Underneath all of that mess, underneath all of that wickedness, all, underneath all of that self-destruction, there's a person there that deserves God's love, that God wants to pour out his love on that person. We are told in verse 2 that he had an unclean spirit, so he was under the influence of a wicked spirit, a demon. Demons are angels that were created by God to serve him. In Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, if you kind of peruse those passages, it creates a picture for us that seems to say this, that before creation, before the earth began, you know, the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. So, when the beginning started, when time started ticking off, God had already existed. And apparently, this is, this is debated among commentators and all that, but the angelic host was there to praise him. And it speaks of one called Lucifer or Satan in the book of Isaiah, who was the beautiful anointed cherub who rebelled against God, who said in his heart, I want to be like, I want to be like the Most High God. I want to be worshipped as God. And so he was driven out of that preferred place and became known as Satan. And it, the book of the Revelation seems to indicate that a third of the angels went with him. And we believe that angels, fallen angels, are, became demons to serve Satan. Instead of serving God, they're, serv- they're serving this lead fallen angel, if you will. So that's what we believe about demons. They seem to want to be in a body, whether human or animal. The Bible says this, and it's really important for us. If you're a Christian, you cannot be demon-possessed. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit, not an unclean spirit. We can be oppressed and we can be hassled and you know, there's spiritual warfare and battles and all of that, but you can't be possessed if the Holy Spirit is in you. There's no room for any other spirit. We read in 1 John 4.4, 4, greater is he that's in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that's in the world. So if you're a Christian, you don't need to worry about that. And I've been in some churches where they taught you know, that, for instance, I've heard people and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody here, but this might resonate with some people, and it's just information for edification and learning and growth. You know, I've been in Christian churches where, like, if you, people, if you, had, if you smoked still, you addicted to nicotine, people would try to cast out of you the demon of nicotine. Or if you ate too many desserts, they'd try to cast out the demon of sugar. And it's like, there's no scriptural reference for that, but if you're a young Christian like I was, and all of us are at one time, you can have great intentions and if they're such nice people and you can start to believe this stuff perhaps, but it's, there's no biblical support for that. If you smoke and you want to, you know, just pray and quit and get a patch and whatever, you know, and if you want to get off of sugar, just give me all your money, you know. 
No, then you're off of sugar, no problem, you know, unless you go scrounging out after church or something, you know. And, and uh, I think we do have some donuts, by the way, today, so feel free. But, but a Christian can't be demon-possessed, so you don't need to worry about that. Oppressed, yes. Hassled, yes. Lied to, yes. Deceived, yes. Not possessed. In verse, three, in verse 2, excuse me, it says that this guy came out to meet Jesus and it's thought maybe perhaps he came out to oppose him at first because that's what he would do. You know, if anybody got in the neighborhood, he came out to hassle them. He came out to confront them and all of that. And, and then perhaps as he's walking towards Jesus, suddenly all the fallen angels within this guy recognize, oh, this isn't just one of the town people. This is Jesus. And so the whole thing changes. It says in verse 3, he dwelt among the tombs, which the word dwelt means he settled down there. This was his permanent home. That's all that he had. In verse uh, verse 3, he dwelt among the tombs. I was thinking that if this man had a Jewish background and knew about Jewish law, you know, it seems like he was out of his mind a lot. So whether he was a Gentile or Jew doesn't really matter. For the point I'm going to make, he probably really hated where he lived. I would have to think in his rational moments when he's thinking, he's not with his family anymore. We don't know how old he was or anything like that. There's no friends, there's no family. Matthew and Luke tell us there was another demoniac there, but he seems to be less of an issue, and so Mark focuses on this main guy. There's no love, there's no friendship, there's no kindness, there's no compassion, there's no support, no emotional support, there's just torment. And, and loneliness and self-destruction, cutting himself with stones, and he's shrieking, and it says night and day, and it just never stops. It's an awful condition that this man was in because of demons, because of darkness. The Bible doesn't tell us how this happened. The Bible doesn't really tell us at all how these things happen, but they happen. If I had to speculate, and this isn't scripture that I'm telling, just my opinion, This man was open to darkness rather than light. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world in the person of Christ. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Now when I was running around in the bars scene and all that and playing top 40 music and play that funky music white boy and all this kind of stuff, you know, all the bars that I ever played music in were always dark. Maybe a red candle flickering on the table. And then at the end of the night, when they turn the lights on, everybody goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> like a bunch of roaches running for the doors, you know. But it may have been that this man just kept opening himself up to darkness. Whatever, whatever, however God was revealing himself to this guy, I have to think he was rejecting it. He was saying no. And so as he closed himself off to the light, he was opening himself up to darkness. It makes sense to me. Not a definitive answer, but it's sanctified opinion. Verses 3 and 5 tell us about this guy, that he was dangerous to himself, he was dangerous to others. Matthew 8.28 says he was exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. I mean, you couldn't even go around where this guy was because he was exceedingly fierce and dangerous. Shackles and chains, hands and feet. He was a terror to his community, lived in subhuman conditions, tormented internally and externally. I know people that, um, that are cutters and burners. When life gets difficult, they find relief by taking a, a cigarette and burning themselves 
or by taking a razor blade and cutting themselves. And somehow I, don't, I, I can relate to a lot of kind of ungodly behavior. I can't relate to that, you know. But the enemy has come to, to destroy life, to kill and steal and destroy. And so that destruction was manifested not only psychologically and emotionally, mentally in this guy, but it was acted out by him taking stones and just being so uh, just torn up inside that he just has to get these emotions out or something, and he's just cutting himself. And it's just totally destructive. He lived like an animal. He had superhuman strength, but it wasn't used to help anybody, only to inflict pain on himself. Cried out and shrieked all the time. John Walvoord, who is a Bible commentary teacher, commentator and teacher, he said this, he said, such behavior shows that demon possession is not mere sickness or insanity, but a desperate satanic attempt to distort and destroy God's image in man. Jesus told us that the enemy has come to, to, seek, to kill and destroy, steal and kill and destroy. I, I do, off, off the notes here for a minute, I do believe that because sin is in the world that people can be born uh, with mental illnesses. I do believe that. Uh, I was telling Pastor Rob, I think... I don't know. Who knows who I was talking to? I have no idea. Um, but I was telling somebody about this guy when Debbie and I lived in Orange County. I had a gardening business. His name was Larry Ganya. And uh, Larry had schizophrenia really, really bad. But he was a Christian. And he lived in the bushes next to the 22 freeway. And so I'd pull up in my gardening truck and kind of pull off and honk the horn and he'd come out of the bushes and we'd go mow lawns together. You know, It was entertaining having a schizophrenic worker. <laughs> and in his sane moments, we had great fellowship. He read the Bible, he understood the Bible. In his sane moments, he would say things that would bless me like crazy. And in his not sane moments, he was frightening and saw visions. Uh, John Lennon had been ki- killed by then, but he used to talk to John all the time. And, uh, you know, he'd see, he, was a, he was a guitar player. He, he was about my height, but maybe he weighed 130 pounds. And he'd sit out in front of Circle K and, and play Beatles songs and people would give him money. But he would say things like this to me. He says, man, God's kicking my rear end. I can't play Beatles songs anymore, you know. Like, <laughs> he was just a funny guy. You know, he was funny, he was humorous, he was clever, really good songwriter. I'd love to, to have somebody do an album of his songs. I have a lot of them on, on tape. And uh, <clears throat> so he was schizophrenic, but he was, but he was saved. And I think, I think I'll see him in heaven. So I don't think that every mental illness, whatever it is, means that somebody is demon-possessed. But I think a lot of times when demon, people are demon-possessed, we think it's just mental illness, and, it's, and it could be more. And it takes some maturity and some discernment to know the difference, to, ha- to, try, to, ha- to try to know how to help people. There's a real good chance that some of the folks over at Napa State are, are not just mentally ill, but that there's some possession going on there. It says eventually that the one called the Antichrist will be possessed by Satan. And he's not going to be naked living in a cave. He's going to be well-dressed, very articulate, multilingual probably, and a real-world leader, but he'll be inhabited by Satan. So it doesn't always manifest like this guy. So destruction comes on a very visceral level, or destruction also comes on a very white-collar level. But Satan came to still kill and destroy. We pick up the story in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And the, the word worship, I love this word, it's the Greek word proskuneo, and it means to kiss the hand, 
as if you were uh, bowing before a king or something like, you know, he'd extend his hand or extend, you kiss the ring or something. I like to go home and tell my dog, Prosku Naomi, kiss my hand. Come on, kiss my hand. She always does too. Isn't it great that your dog just loves you no matter what, you know? But it means to kiss the hand, but it, but it doesn't necessarily mean loving adoration. It means paying homage and, and giving recognition to, to one that you know is great. And it seems here that the, the demons within this man approach Jesus just thinking he's a man and then recognize that he wasn't just a man. And so they stop and they pay him homage. Verse 7, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What do we have in common here? Is what he's saying. I don't have any involvement with you. There's nothing that we share together. And then he says, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Demons, guys, if you think it through, they, they existed as angels before around the throne of God and they know who Jesus is. They were there. So they're, they're not, this, this isn't a guess on their part. They, they witnessed Jesus in his glory. And so they know who he is and they also know what the plan is. They know that eventually they're going to be tormented eternally. It's very interesting to me in verse 7. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. The demon says to God the Son, Hey, Son of God, swear to God that you won't hurt me. (laughs) He's trying to bind him with an oath. He's trying to get Jesus to swear that he won't do something. It's just this great degree of desperation that these demons have. They're kind of like demanding that Jesus take an oath. Kenneth Wiest, bottom of the page one, great Bible commentator, he says here, this is really interesting, here we have a being, incorrigible in his nature, destined to be damned for all eternity, one of the cohorts of Satan, bending the knee to God the Son. This is that of which Paul was speaking when he referred to the universal adoration of the Lord Jesus, even by beings under the earth. Turn your page over. This is what Paul talked about. Every knee shall bow, right? These demons were bowing because they already knew who Jesus was because they had existed beforehand with him. Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Those in heaven and those on the earth, notice, and those under the earth. Those of the underworld recognize who Jesus is. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So they are here bowing because they know who he is. They, they pre-existed in another state and saw Jesus in his glory. Verse 8, Jesus had been saying, come out of the man. It says he said to him, come out of the man, but in the Greek it's a kind of a progressive verb. He had been telling this demon, come out, come out of the man, come out of the man. And so there was this conversation that was going on. Back in verse 7, he called him, what do do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now you would think that the demon was really paying a great compliment to Jesus. But in that culture, when you would travel from pagan country to pagan country, they believed in geographic gods. So you would pay homage to the local God. And the Gentiles would use the term the most high God in this way. You're the most high God of all the other gods. You're Jesus, the son of the most high God, but we know those are other, there were other lesser gods. And what, was, what was maybe we would think was a compliment was actually an insult because the insinuation is you're not the only true God. You might be the big dog on the porch, but you're not the only true God. There's these other gods. And so the, the demons are kind of, they're insulting Jesus. Also, it was thought back in that day, 
when you would... Have you ever had somebody come up to me? It never happens to me, or maybe not to you, but it always happens on TV. Where somebody, you know, you're, you're sitting there waiting for the bus or something, and somebody comes up and says, Hey, yeah? Uh, when are you going to do... When are you going to go do that thing? What are you talking about? I don't know you. I know who you are. Your name is Thomas, and your wife is Becky, and your kids are Jimmy, Paul, and Susie. And, the, and suddenly this guy knows all about you, and suddenly he's like, Oh, man, what does this guy have on me? You know? That was how they would do psychological battle back in those days. When you'd come to somebody and start naming their name exactly and describing their life, that was a psychological advantage. And it seems as though even the demons are trying to get a little psychological advantage on you. We know who you are. You're Jesus, son of the Most High God. As if Jesus is going to go, oh my gosh, they know who I am. You know? But it seems that that's what they were doing. They were kind of playing along with the way things went in those days, trying to intimidate him. Real interesting here, verse 7, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. The demons want to make the Son of God use the name of God to, to not carry out the will of God. They know what's coming. Satan knows what's coming. The demons know what's coming. Look at, look at the verses down below that here. Matthew 8.29, in a parallel passage, have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that a time is coming when they will be finally and eternally judged. 2 Peter 2, verse 4, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. It's another story about a different class of angels that did some bad things. Fallen angels, demons that did some things, that are in the penalty box until the final judgment. The demons know all this. James 2.19, You believe that there is one God. Well, that's good. You do well. But even the demons believe. And they tremble. So demons understand exactly what the plan of God is and they understand exactly what their end is and until that happens, they're out to do destruction and take as many people with them as they can. Verse 9. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion for we are many. A unit in the Roman army, a legion was a unit in the Roman army that made up 6,000 men. And the guy probably didn't have 6,000 demons, but it at least means many demons. Kenneth Weiss once again said this, it's an emblem of irresistible power. Those people knew what a legion was. You know, and when Jesus said, what's your name? They didn't say, uh, Manny, Moe, and Jack. You know, they said legion. Kind of like, they were kind of flexing. And we don't know how many demons there were in this guy, but there were enough to inhabit 2,000 pigs. We know that, right? Because the pigs go drown. Kenneth Missler said years, or Chuck Missler said years ago, this is a joke, so get ready to laugh. This is the, this is the first biblical case of deviled ham. <laughs> I had to throw that in. It's good to laugh a little bit when they're talking about a serious subject. There was great destructive power in these demons. I want you to turn, we're just going to turn to one passage here. Uh, turn over to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And this is really, really important for us guys. And then we're just going to come back to Mark and, and stay in Mark and we're, we're going to be done in a few minutes here. But in, in Ephesians chapter 6, to the right in your Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10. You need to know this because... The demonic realm didn't go away in the olden days. It still exists today. 
It's manifested in many different ways. In North Africa and all that, they're still sacrificing animals to, 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 to wooden idols that are hung on their walls and all of that. Here, demons work in a different way, probably, among different demographics. So you need to know this. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the strategies of the devil. Satan isn't just a, a big guy with a big club. He's strategic. And he knows how to get to you. And he knows how to get to people. He knows how to shape a culture. Verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Remember that when you're going headhunting on Facebook. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, ranks and files, generals and lieutenants and corporals and sergeants and privates. It's described in military terms. The work of the enemy is very organized, and we don't always see it, but it's very organized. It's not haphazard. It's not just some guy in a drunken brawl at a bar swinging at anything he can. It's very strategic. That's why we have, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, that's why you have to kind of, you know, put on your gear, get your thoughts right, get your heart right. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The rest of the passage deserves your attention on your own time. Let's turn back to Mark. So here we see this legion of demons destroying this man, confronting Jesus, demanding, trying to make Jesus swear by the name of God. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Begged him earnestly means he begged and begged and begged and begged and begged. There was great desperation in the demons. There's one demon speaking for all of them. What's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. So there's one spokesman for all of the demons. And they are begging corporately Jesus. Now consider this, you guys. They are begging Jesus, don't send us out of this geographical region. We like the area. I'm going to comment more on that in a minute. I think, well, I'm going to comment on it now, not even a minute, less than a minute. I think there was a spiritual atmosphere in that region that made, that made this extreme possession possible. I think there was something going on in this region. I mentioned it before, maybe apostate Jews, maybe just gent. we don't know. There was something going on, in my, my opinion, something going on in this region where somebody could get this bad and nobody did anything about it and they couldn't anymore. It was out of control. I want you to look at your notes and I just want you to consider some things. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is writing seven letters to seven churches and he's describing the conditions of the churches and where they live and what they're doing and all that. And I want you to notice, Jesus said to the church at Pergamos, I know your works, I know where you dwell. Pergamos is where they dwelled. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne was. Throne is, excuse me. I know where you live. It's where Satan has set up headquarters. That's not just a, a misspoken word by Jesus, right? I know where you live. You live in this city, and, you, and, and there's a lot of satanic activity everywhere, but in your city, it's headquarters. 
And you hold fast to my name, did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed, who was killed among you. Notice, where Satan dwells. We have to try to make something of that. I just give it to you for your consideration, to be aware. I'm going to keep developing this a little bit. I think it deserves development. A Bible commentator named Grotius said this, the Decapolis, and we read about the Decapolis in verse 20, it just simply means ten cities. The Decapolis was full of Hellenistic apostate Jews. They were Greek ethnically, but they had converted to Judaism, but then turned away. So they knew the word of God, and they knew about the true and the living God, but they turned away. This area was loved by demons, in this guy's opinion. They had thrown themselves out of the covenant of God. The people had said, we don't want God anymore. Please connect the dots. Be a, be a, be a thinking Bible listener today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? Jesus says that. I want you to think about this, okay? We're almost done. They had thrown themselves out of the covenant of God and had thereby given Satan power over them. We don't want God so there's a spiritual vacuum. Guys, spiritual vacuums do not get left empty. They get filled with something. And some suggest that, having by experience the demons, they got the knowledge of the dispositions and manners of the people of that country. And they, the demons, could the more effectually do them mischief by their temptations. The demons are like, where can we go and raise hell? I know. Let's go to the Decapolis. They've rejected God en masse. They won't, they won't oppose us. They'll be open to us. I just discovered something about the San Francisco Bay Area. You guys are going to love, hate this. The San Francisco Bay Area is the most unchurched region in the United States. Proven by the Barna Group, who does all these studies. So... Is it hard to be a Christian? You know, I talked to my Christian buddies in, in Southern California. How's your church? You know, I said, good. Well, how many people you got? Oh, we've got this many. Oh, we've got 2,000. I said, well, good for you. Come up to the Bay Area, big guy. God only sends his best to the Bay Area. I know, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm teasing, kind of. Not patting me in the, All I'm saying is, I think, I think it's a legitimate biblical thing to recognize that geographically some areas are harder than others. Barna Group also discovered that the, the, the San Francisco Bay Area is not only the most unchurched, it's the most de-churched. More people leave church in the San Francisco Bay Area than anywhere else in the United States. So if you're having a hard time with your walk, that brings some understanding to the situation, doesn't it? I heard one of, the, one of the broadcasters and one of the, the owners or uh, administrators or something, managers of KFAX Radio, I heard him say years ago, the number one influence of San Francisco is influence. And so I think it's true. So these demons said, you know what? Don't send us out of the area. This is, this is a good area for us to work in. Don't, we don't want to leave this area. And they're begging him. So I submit that to you for your consideration. Verse 11. And, and please don't say, oh man, we've got to move. <laughs> yeah, it's expensive to live here and it's a, spiritually a little harder here than some areas, for sure. And I'm sure in other places around the world it's much harder than the San Francisco Bay Area. But it's, I think it is a little tougher here. 
I, I do. I'm in a really good fraternity of, of uh, lead pastors, and we get together regularly. And we all go through the, heart, the same thing as it's difficult in, in many ways. No, I'm not crying in my beer or anything or crying in my holy water. Um, you know, I'm just, it just, it, there's scriptural precedent for that. So I'm just sharing it with you. And here we are going over this verse. The demons didn't want to leave the area. They liked the area. But Jesus wants to do a good work here, amen? He wants to bring revival to the San Francisco Bay Area. May that be the new influence that San Francisco eventually puts out. So the Lord wants to use you. If some people are moving and they need to buy a house and raise a family, and that's fine. But if, you know, I really just want to admire and, and commend Christians that saying, you know what, God has us here. I'm, bu- I'm buying my, my plot over at Tula Cay and I'm not leaving. We're here. We're here for the long run. We're going we're gonna to serve the Lord in this area that seems to be a little tougher. And if the Lord's calling you somewhere else, that's okay too. Because Satan is like a roaring lion. He's going everywhere. So, verse 11 to 13. Um, Jesus grants, the, the demons begged, saying, send us into the pigs that we may enter them. Jesus gave permission at once. Jesus wasn't the cause of the destruction of the pigs, but he allowed the demons to show their true colors. There's, there's some swine herds there. Jesus, I believe, wants the swine herds to see the destructive nature of demonic activity. And where is, he going to, where is it going to hit him? It's going to hit him in the wallet. So Jesus grants the request. He doesn't try to talk him out of it or anything. He grants the request, and apparently the demons don't want to be without a body. And they go rushing down into the lake, the deviled ham thing. You guys laughed, I'm glad. And they're drowned in the sea. Now verse 14, Now those who fed the swine, these are the swine herds, they fled. And they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see uh, what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus. So they go tell the city. The whole city comes out to see what's going on. The whole city knew about this demoniac. And they came to Jesus, saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I feel like that verse describes me a little bit after the Lord got a hold of me, sitting and clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> That's what Jesus does. He restores us to humanity. He restores us to dignity. The devil and his demons want to do the exact opposite. Jesus brings dignity to a life so that we don't have to live alone anymore and destroy ourselves. So we can have self-worth and a good good healthy ego in the best sense of the word, a God-honoring ego. Verse 16, And those who saw it told them how it had happened. Verse 17, and they begin to plead with him to depart from the region. It's a strange response that they had. I'm going to read it and make a few comments and then we're going to take any questions if you have any and then we're going to close. But verse 17, they begin to plead with him to depart. And so he did. Notice, guys, verse 17, they begin to plead He didn't even have to be asked twice. You don't want me here? I'll leave. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't beg to stay. He doesn't warn them. Nothing. He doesn't do anything. He showed them, he gave them a demonstration of the the fruit of their own lives and saying, you know what? This is what you've allowed to happen in your region. The demons like being around you. This is what demons do. I came and restored this man to dignity in life. Now, Now your pigs were killed by what you tolerate around here and make a comfortable atmosphere for. He didn't have to argue anything. The evidence was there. 
The evidence of demonic activity was clear. The evidence of Jesus' activity was clear. I mean, there was no questioning anything. There was no wondering, what should we choose? What should we choose? It was clear. He didn't need to sermonize. They, They made up their mind right away. We don't want you here. He said, okay, I'm gone. Didn't beg to stay. And when he got into the boat, verse 18, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Really understandable, isn't it? However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home, tell your friends, tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you and how he, how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all people marveled. In verse 14, the caretakers of the pig, uh, they told it, the people came out and and. The Greek word is that they came and examined the situation. They looked carefully at it. They, they analyzed the situation. They saw the clear evidence of Jesus' power, the destruction of the demons. But it seems as though, guys, their hearts were more concerned for financial loss. If these guys were apostate Jews, we don't know, but if they were apostate Jews, they had nothing to do with pigs. They should have had nothing to do with pigs. It was not kosher. But they had compromised in their life. They had compromised so much that the demons loved hanging around where they were and destroying lives. So Jesus just kind of gave in to them all and said, this is what you want? Okay. This guy very naturally wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, you have a mission. You're you're now ordained as a missionary. (laughs) Go home. They need to hear about me. There were three questions asked. The demons asked something and Jesus said yes. And the people asked him to leave and he said yes. And the man said, can I go with you too? And he said no. And of the three questions, the best question was the man's. And sometimes God will give you a good, healthy no because he has a greater calling for your life. So with deep gratitude, the man obeyed, entered the mission field that had cast him away and began to tell the people about the great works of God. I don't know if we have any questions uh, this morning. I can try to answer them. Would you please explain more about what demonic oppression is for the Christian? Thank you. Very quickly, um, the Bible talks about fiery darts. I mean, if you think about the name Satan, let's just open it up here for like 20 seconds. Raise your hand very quickly if you can answer this. What are some of the names of Satan in the Bible? Raise your hand, I'll call on you. Raise your hand and I'll go. <laughs> Diane, deceiver. So Satan wants to deceive you, Christians. Yes. Uh, Lucifer, Lucifer, light bearer. So he comes and pretends to be a bearer of light. Yeah, Vicky. Devil, destroyer. Yeah. Prince of darkness. He's not bringing light. Liar. How does Satan get to Christians? He deceives, he lies, he tells you that sin doesn't have consequences. Yeah, go ahead. He goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour us. So he can't have... Okay, one more. Uh, He causes us to commit sin. Great. He can't have our souls, guys, but he wants to render us useless. He wants to harm us. He wants to to give us a bad witness in the community to bring shame upon the name of Christ. All those things. It has been said regarding uh, bankers, and some of you may have heard this, bank tellers are trained to uh, be able to identify counterfeit bills. And you know how they do it? 
when they first get hired, they only handle the real thing. And a, a real dollar by the U.S. government has a certain feel to it. And then when a counterfeit comes through, they don't even have to be looking. They can just feel it and go, something's wrong here. The same way, if you know the Word of God, if you, if you read your Bible and understand it and ask God to give you insight, you can tell when something's wrong and then you put on the brakes and say, slow down a minute. I, gotta, I have to re-examine. Is this a good relationship? Is this a good thing to do? Is this, are these good people to hang out with? Is this a good thing to put in my body? You, you put the brakes on, you go, oh, I don't know about this. Because Satan wants to deceive and lie and destroy it. He's very good at it. If you're a Christian, he can't have your soul. Good question. If Satan decided he wanted to be worshipped as God while he was in heaven, does that mean that there was sin in heaven? Uh, I would have to say, yeah, there was sin. Satan, uh, the heaven that we like to think about is where sin is banished in the future. But in that time, there was free will among the angelic host. And so Satan did sin and rebel against God. When we get to heaven, all that's going to be done. There's going to be no place for sin in the presence of God. That sounds really, really good. Questions. What happened to the demons that were in the pigs that drowned? Well, they lost their host bodies and they went wandering. And Jesus talks about it in another gospel that they go wandering looking for a place to settle down. So they went looking for other people. They may, they may have gotten together and said, hey, we know where to go. Let's go back to the capitalists. We'll find us another one. The city's full of them. That's all. We're, we're not told exactly what happened. So sanctified speculation. What's the um, worship leaders? Come on back up. What do we have to What do we have to think about regarding all this? We have to realize that there's ter- terrible wickedness in the world, terrible evil in the world, and that hasn't changed. Satan is not God's equal, but he's God's opponent. If you're a Christian, you can't be demon possessed, but you can be lied to, and you can be deceived. Even in churches, you can be deceived. So it's up to you to be students of the word of God, to understand what's right and wrong. What else have we studied today? Not everything that looks like mental illness is mental illness. It might be demonic. We've also studied today that if you say, continually say no to God, he'll grant your request. And that's the most frightening place anybody could ever be, to say no to God. Because then there's a spiritual vacuum that's open and it's not going to stay empty. And Satan wants to rush in, get a hold of your life and destroy you. And he might destroy you by giving you 50 years of riches and wealth and fast cars and beautiful places to live and then he takes your soul. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And you can't even ever gain the whole world. You can't. But if you could, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world? And lose your soul. You've lost everything. And that's what Satan wants. We have a cunning adversary, but we have a great God. And we need to be equipped, put on the full armor of God that you can withstand. I also want to say this. If there's anybody here that's dabbling with any of this dark stuff, you need to repent. And you need to turn away from it. And you might think it's harmless and kind of uh, entertaining and and I'm not even, I wouldn't be surprised if you're getting a little bit of feedback from it and finding yourself in contact with some evil spirit or something. That They love to do that. If you're messing with tarot cards, if you're going to seances, if you're going to palm readers and all this stuff, guys, those things are gateways for the enemy. You need to repent. It'll destroy you. Christians have no place for that. Nobody should. 
but especially the body of Christ. Some of you may have been born into the Decapolis. You were born into a home where there's a lot of darkness. And you didn't necessarily invite it in, but it just was in every room of the house. And it just affected you and affected you. And God wants you to, to break you free of wrong thinking and wrong inclinations and wrong prejudices and all of those things. And so the Lord wants to bring freedom in those areas. We're going to close the service now with a song. We're going to ask the leaders to come up and there's going to be people praying here. We're going to kind of turn the lights down so we have a little privacy. If you need prayer for anything at all today, there's going to be people. If you're, if you're called to pray, would you guys come on up right now and, and be here to receive folks? And, um, but if you need to pray, let's, let's respond to the Lord. However he may have spoken to you today um, about any of this, but I really want to encourage you, uh, if, you're, if you need to let go of some things, if you need to let go of some people that are bringing you down, if there's compromise in your life and it's opening the door to the enemy, he wants to destroy you. This hasn't changed. It might be manifested differently, but it hasn't gone away. And we need to say no to sin and no to the, no to the wicked one. We need to say yes to Jesus. So, let me pray. Lord, thank you. We commit this to you. Father, we pray for our own lives and we thank you, Lord, that you're the light of the world and we want to walk in your light, Lord. And we don't want to give in to darkness, Lord. Father, we pray for our church, pray for each one here. We thank you for each one here, Lord. And we pray, God, that you'd have your way with us. That we would um, be clean vessels, open to you, that you would use us for your glory. Thank you, Lord.